HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. All right, so founding fathers in food may not be an association that you think about too much, but it's a topic that Ray Catherine Amy has studied extensively. Um, she is the author of Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, which is an illuminating biography of the president, Abraham Lincoln, told through the lens of food. And we featured this on our show when it came out a few years ago. But now, in her latest book, she has turned her attention to Ben Franklin. And this book is called Stirring the Pot with Benjamin Franklin, A Founding Father's Culinary Adventures. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome back Ray, Catherine, Amy. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for your kind words and for inviting me back. Yeah. No, it's been it's been so much fun. I love what you do. And... Um, you're, you know, you're an award-winning author and food historian and cook, but I understand that you're also quite a champ when it comes to cooking competitions. Is well, right? I, I had some good luck at both the Iowa State Fair and Minnesota State Fair food competitions a few years back. That's awesome. What did you, I see you won blue ribbon. So wh- what did you make? Like, what was your Well, um, for the Iowa one, it was a turkey main dish that was kind of an unusual treatment with honey in, in a meatball, and in the Minnesota one, it was, they had strange kind of categories. It was jelly other than the one that was named. So they had, you know, like cherry jelly and uh, apple jelly, oh. and, and I made a seedless raspberry jam, which was pretty darn good if I say so myself. All right. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of people agreed with that one, too. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, oh my goodness, this book is so incisive, and I never would have thought, so why, why Benjamin Franklin? 
I was looking for something to follow up the Lincoln book, uh-huh. and I just happened to pick up my tattered copy of Ben Franklin's autobiography just to think, well, you know, he's, he's somebody who's famous that people know who might want to know more about. And as I read through the beginning chapters, Franklin used food 14 times to illuminate his own life story. Mm. And I thought, well, gosh, this is meant to be. <laughs> Yeah, I don't see too many um, passages involving food in most biographies. Not that I'm like the most astutely well-read person when it comes to biographies, but it doesn't seem to come up too much, but it should. You're right, I think, Kathy. People you know, tend to talk, I think, both in their autobiographies and in biographical treatments of kind of the larger arcs of history or life story, and, you know, don't get too much into the everyday life, but to me, that's what illuminates the character and the persona of the person, and that's what I try to do in, in my books. Yeah, I love that you write in the intro, I have long known that food is the most powerful connection to our own past and to the lives of others. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you think about it, you know, everybody has a memory, or or more than one, of their childhood or a moment in their adult life where, you know, you're breaking green beans with your grandmother on the front mm-hmm. porch, or you're standing beside your mother as she's making that special dish for your birthday. And as you think about those moments, it's not only the event itself, but you can recall the taste and the texture and the aroma, and it carries you back. Mm. You do something that seems a little bit um, unique for a historian. You actually cook and eat the meals that you found that uh, that Benjamin Franklin perhaps cooked and ate during his lifetime. <laughs> or his wife, Deborah, did. Right, right. <laughs> or his French chef. <laughs> right. Or his English landlady. <laughs> right. But, you know, you, you scope out historical recipes and then make them. Why, yes. why is that important to cook them? Well, I, you know, number one, the idea is to just carry those different textures and flavors to into the modern table. Um, and, you know, you can read about, you know, Franklin's biscuit or the lemon ice cream that he ate in Paris. And you think, oh, well, you know, it's a biscuit or, oh, well, it's lemon ice cream. But when you look at the recipes that were working during his lifetime, and make them, and then mm. eat them, you discover that the flavors and textures are different, and they're so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for carrying the torch on with some of these historical recipes, which I, I find that, you know, it can be difficult to understand, but it sounds like you, you're you pretty good at translating those. And Well, thanks, I try, and I've, I've been working with them for a couple of decades now, so I kind of have my sea legs, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. my kitchen spoon, I don't know which. <laughs> um, it, it's an interesting, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the sort of particulars of that, but let's talk about some broad strokes of Benjamin Franklin and food. He he strikes me as a sort of familiar type of character today. He was an innovator, he was a visionary, and he was bent on making, creating a new country, creating new things all the time. and if you might say, disrupting the status quo. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he stirred um, the pot. Yeah. Yeah, and but in in creating the new country, he was drawn to understanding what were the you know the basics here. You know what was important, what was critically important, and he used corn as kind of a metaphor for that. Mm. He was a big proponent of American corn as like American this corn and American, American cranberries product. and American mm. Newtown Pippin apples were some of his favorite foods. Aww. And when he was, he spent 15 years of his life in London working as kind of a, a lobbyist or trade negotiator with the British um, government. And this was, of course, before the revolution. And so his wife, Deborah, would send him his favorite food. So she would send him smoked meats, uh, pickled sturgeon, which is a, a very large American fish. Mm-hmm. And you pickle it by putting it in a barrel with you know, pickling stuff. I did not do that one. Uh, <laughs> but she sent him apples and she sent him cranberries, which, you know, totally flummoxed the kitchen staff of his British landlady, Mrs. Mm. Stevenson. They'd never seen them. So, you know, they had to kind of be instructed as to the best way to turn them into a great cranberry tart. Oh, that's so fun. So he was also very fond of um, health pursuits, too. Um he was a vegetarian for a while. For and, a while, yeah. Um, it, as a youth, and this is this is kind of the, the this incident, to my mind, kind of encapsulates all that is Franklin. Mm. Um, when he was young, twelve, he went to work for his brother James, who was a printer, and he was to learn the business. And he did learn the business, and in fact, he was a, a printer in in habit and in loving it to the end of his days. But his he read a book um, because he had access to all these books now mm-hmm. in his brother's library and in the library of the other merchants around town. And he'd kind of borrow the books overnight, and then he'd put them back before anybody knew he'd read them. Mm-hmm. So he wrote this book about being a vegetarian. And it was both from a health perspective and from the moral perspective mm-hmm. of, you know, not eating things which... Um, you know, have souls. So he thought, well, okay, I'll become a vegetarian. Well, this was a bit of a business dilemma for his brother because Mm -hmm. it was, his brother didn't have a wife, so they went to board with a woman and she cooked the meals for James and Ben and the other apprentices and journeymen in James's printing shop. So James said to Ben, well, you know, this is just too much trouble to make this this woman cook your special kind of food. So how about this? I will give you half the money that I would spend for your meals, and you can go buy them for yourself. Well, Ben, clever lad that he was, said to himself, I will spend only half that money, and I'll buy books with the other half. So he's feeding his body and his mind. (laughs) And while the other men were off, you know, spending the hour eating, he was alone. So he could read and eat the tart that he bought from the baker's shop. <laughs> so it was like a win-win-win. Yeah, double, I guess, yeah, multitasking there. Yeah. And <laughs> really, that is so wonderful. Um, yeah, and um, so he was also interested in vegetables, and this was, in, you know, interesting varieties, too, and fi- planting them, growing them. But this was a time, if I'm not mistaken, that vegetables didn't really get much attention culinarily. You know, that's really hard to understand. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you have you have cookbooks of the era which do give a fair amount of space to vegetables. 
Um, I, my thinking is that people cooked them more than the cookbooks may have written about them because mm. they were not as difficult to cook or understand as some of the meat dishes were. Oh, okay. But so that's, understood you know, that. But then you do see later on, you know, cookbooks with extensive recipe chapters on vegetables. And then when you look at the accounts, we were so fortunate to have um, in his papers the accounts of his French uh, maitre d', the man who ran his kitchen and his home in Paris in 1783, and he wrote down everything that he bought. And so you can go through them, um, translating them from French, of course, um, and see how many how much vegetable and fruit matter that Franklin Franklin's kitchen bought wow. and it was an enormous amount got it yeah so it just wasn't uh, maybe it didn't get the spotlight so much in the cookbooks yeah yeah i think yeah. you're right yeah um you know, and, and Franklin loved vegetables. He loved asparagus. He, you know, to the chagrin of the French nobility um, with whom he was trying to do business, he ate it with his fingers. <laughs> <laughs> That's so unrefined. But that was part of his, part of the persona. Mm. And it, it's just a nice little food um, entree into the way he presented himself to the French. When he was in London, he wore a powdered wig. He presented himself very much as part of the gentry with mm. a velvet coat and all of that kind of stuff. When he went to Paris, he went as a humble American mm-hmm. seeking aid because without the French providing money and gunpowder and men to fight, uh, the revolution was in dire straits. Ah. We we owe a tremendous debt to the French. Right. And so, he, you know, Franklin's going over there to beg, so he goes in not-so-fancy clothes. Mm. He doesn't wear a wig. He wears this funny little fur cap. And, you know, he presents himself as, although he was an intellectual and everyone recognized his genius, he was known as the man who captured lightning from mm-hmm. his electricity experiments and his... His experiments, which he wrote up that he did in Philadelphia in the 18, mm-hmm. 1740s and 50s, they were translated into French, so he was famous. Mm. But he presented himself as sort of a country rustic, if yeah. you will. Yeah, sort and of And eating asparagus with his fingers was kind of part of that. That's <laughs> a funny strategy with food. <laughs> um, okay, Ray, we're going to cut to a quick little uh, interlude and be right back chatting more. Great, thanks. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sierchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards 
to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. All right, we're back chatting more with Ray Catherine Amy. She is the author of Stirring the Pot with Benjamin Franklin. Hi, Ray. You still here? I still am. Awesome. So, okay, so you mentioned that, you know, Benjamin Franklin was the father of electricity. Uh, There's a very interesting story here regarding turkeys and electricity. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) With Franklin, electrical experimentation was kind of all the rage. Mm -hmm. And it was part parlor trick and part scientific investigation and part mystery. And so there were people all over Europe and in England and in the United States kind of tinkering with it. And they, you know, they would do parlor tricks. They'd invite their friends over. Franklin, however, <laughs> wanted to carry this, was, was driven to carry uh-huh. this beyond just the parlor trick level of, you know, attracting things to you with static electricity. Uh-huh. So he engaged in several years' worth of significant uh, exploring of how electricity worked. He coined several of the words that we use to understand electricity. But he wanted to find practical man that he was, some practical use for it. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Um, he thought he would, well, maybe it would be some way that you could use it to dispatch fowl before you cooked them. <laughs> so he spent one late fall winter working with, you know, dispatching chickens, oh, and then he worked goodness. up to turkeys. Uh-huh. And so you have, in order to do this, you need to have two sets of batteries, and the batteries in his Franklin's time were called Leyden jars. Uh-huh. So kind of picture one of those big, huge gallon vinegar jars, those glass ones. Yeah. And they have a stopper on them, and they have wires coming out of them, and it's all very complicated, but you get the rough idea. So he had his Leyden jars, and he had a friend's Leyden jars, so he could, he could have a significant charge. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to put the turkey between these two sets of Leyden jars to dispatch it in a humane way, because he did discover that chickens, which were dispatched that way, cooked more tender than the others, Mm -hmm. so there was a benefit, but But poor Ben, before he could take the turkey, he walked between them himself and received an enormous shock and was knocked backwards and was knocked out for some period of time, so he... uh, was a bit more careful where he placed yeah. himself in further experiments. I love that, you know, the, the intention of having this grand sort of dinner theater uh, involving <laughs> the, you know, the, the dispatching or the killing of this turkey and <laughs> just had gone horribly wrong. Um, yes, I think his friends were horrified. <laughs> <laughs> but um, did was electricity ever used to maybe try to cook the bird or just to... No, Kill no this, is, this is, he had a dream, uh, you know, where he wrote to one of his fellow experimenters, you know, that, you know, at some time in the future, wouldn't it be wonderful to have this amazing party where we would, you know, kill the turkeys and cook the turkeys and, you know, do all these wonderful things with electricity. But oh, wow. that didn't happen in his lifetime. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if it happened yet. Did, did it happen outside <laughs> his lifetime? <laughs> Well, we have microwaves. <laughs> that's true. Know. That's true. <laughs> oh man! Oh, so many inventions up this uh, up Benjamin's sleeve. But uh, you rent, you mentioned that he managed to 
convince everybody to drink his favorite porridge, um, his peers in a the printing company, I believe. Right when his, he was a lad in London, um, he was he was. You know, we're used to seeing Ben Franklin as sort of this, you know, round, colonial, jolly fellow. When he was younger, you know, up through his 60s, he was slim, energetic, athletic, um, and really, really strong. Hmm. Now, he contributed his strength to eating well. Mm-hmm. And when he worked in London um, as a youth, he was there for two years when he was 17, 18, 19. Um, his... The, the journeyman in the printing firm where he worked, and journeyman all over London for that matter, would have beer for breakfast, beer at mid-morning, beer for lunch, <laughs> beer in the breakfast middle of the champions. afternoon. And he said to them, you know, look how strong I am. And instead of drinking the product of the grain, mm. try this. They called it water gruel, which is really a not very appetizing name. <laughs> but it's like any kind of hot cereal. I mean, it's like cream of wheat. It's like oatmeal. Yeah. So he, um, you know, convinced them to try this. They called him the water American because he wouldn't drink. Mm. He preserved, he preferred to eat the grains rather than the drinking drink the product alcohol. Of them. Yeah. He could carry twice as much heavy lead type as they could. <laughs> so he convinced a number of them to follow his diet regimen. And, and in another one of those win-win-win, this was much less expensive for them and buying beer all the yeah. time. So they saved money, too. Oh, that's such a... You know, it's so fascinating how people go through stages with food, and I loved reading about Benjamin Franklin's extreme stages <laughs> as more, you know, as much as any of the, the greatest, you know, chefs out there. It's it's such a fascinating story. Um, there but, are so many aspects. And, yeah. And so many, as you're suggesting, so many nuggets that you can mm-hmm. touch on, and they're all really delicious. Well, I think that's about all the time we have to talk about it today, Um, but I hope everyone gets to read all those nuggets and a whole lot more in this beautifully written historical, um, what do you call it? I guess biography. Biography, (laughs) I think, yeah. Yeah. Slash cookbook. All right. Well, thank you so much again for joining us, Ray. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. That I never, 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 never had no loving like this Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, 
as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.